The sermon this Lord's Day is from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. Let me read for you our text in its entirety. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than three hundred pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. A critic in the Greek language is a judge. That's what the word critic means. This judge. Now, there is a good sense in which we are all called to be critics or judges. In order to be a good critic of others and not an evil critic, one, we must evaluate others using the law of God. Not only the law in the sense of the justice of God, but also following the law of God as it commands us to be merciful with others. God's law commands both our duties with regard to justice and with regard to mercy. As we evaluate others, as we are critics, secondly, we must consider our own sins. First of all, we must consider our own sins and faults and weaknesses in removing the beam from our own eye before we seek to remove the speck from a brother or sister's eye. Thirdly, we must love our neighbor. If we're to be a good critic, we must love our neighbor and show that love in our willingness to help that person to whom we have offered criticism in any way that we can, not simply to offer the criticism and then leave them alone, but to come alongside of them and to help bear their burdens. That's a good critic. 
Fourthly, we must not only reveal the sin of our neighbor when we offer criticism, but also give our neighbor encouragement and hope so that he does not fall into despondency and despair after having received criticism from us. Fifthly, we must imitate the Lord Jesus Christ when offering criticism, who was brutally honest with those who were obstinate and rebellious in their sin, but compassionately patient with those who were weak and struggling in their sin. And sixthly and finally, we must offer criticism for the glory of God and not to vindicate ourselves or to make ourselves look good for God's glory, not our own. There's also an evil sense in which we may be a critic. An evil critic forgets mercy, does not consider his own sins, does not love nor offer his help to the one whom he criticizes, leaves those who hate their sin but fall into sin nevertheless with no encouragement in the present and with no hope for the future. An evil critic does not forbear with those who struggle with certain besetting sins but is very impatient with them and is moved by pride to verbally attack them. How often, dear ones, do we fall into the category of an evil critic rather than a righteous critic? Dear ones, an evil critic is a cancer to his or her own soul and to the souls of others. For once this ungodly criticism is manifested, it has the tendency to infect others, as we shall see from our text this Lord's Day. God grant to us repentance and forgiveness of all such evil criticism that destroys others and may grow, and may we grow, dear ones, in the grace of showing a righteous criticism that profits others rather than destroys others. The main points from our text in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 9, are these. Number one, a genuine act of love in Mark 14, verses 1 through 3. Number two, an unfounded word of criticism in Mark chapter 14, verses 4 through 5. And number three, an approved word of encouragement. Mark chapter 14, verses 6 through 9. Let us consider then our first main point together, a genuine act of love. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Look with me at these verses as I, as I read them. After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft and put him to death. But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. 
And being in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. And she broke the box and poured it on his head. Let's take a quick look at the big picture before looking at our text this time. As we begin our study of Mark chapter 14, the Jewish Passover is just two days away. And following the Jewish Passover, there was then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, lasted a total of seven days. This is the third day of Christ's Passion Week, or if you will, Tuesday of that week. And the events of this Tuesday comprise more verses in the Gospel of Mark than any other day in Christ's life. They stretch, this one day, this Tuesday, stretches from Mark chapter 11, verse 20, all the way to Mark chapter 14, verse 9. We now come to the evening of a very long day in the ministry of our Lord. You'll remember from the previous chapter in Mark chapter 13 that the Lord has just concluded His prophecies concerning His non-bodily coming in 70 A.D., His non-bodily coming at the time of the millennium and His bodily second coming after the millennium at the end of the world. Mark chapter 14 prepares us for the events to come by first revealing the evil plot of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the general assembly, as it were, of the Jewish church. It was composed of chief priests, the scribes, which were experts in the law, and the elders of the people. And we see their plot enunciated in Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It says that they sought how they may, might take him, that is Christ, by craft, by deceit, secretly, and put him to death. But they said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. You see, on the feast day, on the Passover and during the, that uh, feast of unleavened bread, many, many hundreds and thousands of Israelites gathered in Jerusalem. And many of them were drawn to Christ by both what He had to say as, by, as well as by His miracles. Just a, a few days before, you recall, on the, on the first day of this Passion Week, Earlier in Mark, Jesus had rode upon a donkey into Jerusalem, triumphantly declaring himself to be the king. And the shouts and the acclamation of the people sounded forth, even from the voices of children, declaring, Hosanna! Praise God! Let God be pleased even to recognize and to to show forth His glory in this, our Messiah. 
They declared him to be their king as he rode into Jerusalem. But here they are now at this particular point, these leaders within the Jewish church. They've gathered in their assembly not to promote the truth or the glory of God, but they've gathered in their assembly rather to destroy Jesus Christ who is the truth and the glory of God. Here we see, dear ones, that those who have the title of ministers and elders in the church may indeed err from the truth. It is not who ordains a man, nor what title a man is given, nor how old the church is that ordains a man that guarantees the faithfulness of that assembly to the truth. Know the faithfulness of an ordained assembly of ministers and elders is only guaranteed by their agreement with the Holy Scriptures. When we follow men because of their titles or because of our loyalty to them or because of the degrees behind their names, we are practicing, dear ones, an implicit faith wherein we accept what they say on the basis of their own human authority rather than on the basis of God's infallible authority in His Word. Rome teaches an implicit faith. And how prone we are to fall into this particular trap ourselves to place an implicit faith in men. But Scripture denounces an implicit faith in man and requires only an implicit faith in God and in His Word. Listen to the words of our confession of faith in chapter 31, paragraph 4. All synods or councils since the apostles' times, whether general or particular, may err, and many have erred, therefore they are not to be made the rule of faith or practice, but to be used as an help in both. That is, in both faith or practice, as a help, but not as the rule of faith or practice. And dear ones, this assembly of the Jewish church that plotted the death of Christ had the titles of authority. It had the, the name of being an ancient church. But it had not the right of authority because it had obstinately defected from the truth. Dear ones, let me simply say by way of application to each of you, it is your obligation to resist my authority as your minister and as your pastor or anyone else's authority if we should ever, God forbid, but if we should ever command you to do what is unlawful. For as Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 13.8, we can do nothing against the truth but for the truth. Christ does delegate to ministers and to elders His authority to rule in His church. And we should never take that matter lightly. We should submit to all lawful authority. 
However, dear ones, the freedom that Christ has purchased for His church at the cost of His own blood demands we never become a slave to the mere commandments of men in either doctrine or worship. Note also from our text in Mark 14.2 how these wicked rulers were so wise to foresee the temporal danger that would fall upon them if they sought to put Christ to death during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Very wise to foresee what might happen as to the circumstances, the earthly and temporal circumstances. They didn't want an uproar of the people. They, they, were, they were going to be very wise, crafty themselves in not seeking to take hold of Christ while all the people were gathered in Jerusalem. They were going to wait. It was their plan to wait till afterwards, originally. Of course, Judas, as we shall see next Lord's Day, God willing, provided them an opportunity that they could not resist when he came and offered to betray the Lord Jesus Christ into their hands. But how foolish were these wicked rulers not to see the eternal danger that would fall upon them if they sought to put Christ to death and did not embrace Him as their Savior and God. There was, we are so afraid of offending mortal man, but so little afraid at times of offending the everlasting God. We so fear the sentence of earthly judges, but fear so little the sentence of the heavenly judge. How short-sighted we are by nature. We can't see at times beyond our own noses. We are by nature just like these rulers. For we can only see, dear ones, that which is eternal and that which is heavenly by means of the Spirit of God who opens our eyes to behold the eternal consequences of all that we do and say. Do you, dear ones, not only see the earthly consequences of your desires and plans, decisions, words and deeds, but also do you see, and even more importantly, do you see their eternal consequences. If you see those eternal consequences, you are truly blessed with a heavenly insight and illumination from God. And you are responsible to live according to the light which God has given to you if you have that light and understanding to behold those eternal consequences. Well, let us now consider, dear ones, more particularly the act of love that's found in our text. <clears throat> First of all, let us look at the circumstances leading up to this act of love. After the Lord's ministry in Jerusalem that Tuesday, <clears throat> he was invited to be the guest of one Simon the leper. This most likely would indicate that here was a man 
who was once a leper, but had been healed by the mercy and the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. This meal, given in honor of the Lord, was in effect Simon's token of thankfulness and gratitude to the Lord Jesus Christ. For Simon knew all too well his previous condition as a leper. He knew all too well how that particular illness had separated him from his family and friends. How it had so uh, terribly affected his life, both physically, socially, spiritually, and separating him from the ordinances of God. But he also had come to know through faith in Jesus Christ, Christ's righteousness, and Christ's faithfulness, and His mercy, and His his power. Simon was not forgetful of Christ's undeserved kindness toward him, but indicated his gratitude by inviting Christ to this meal so that he could enjoy that personal fellowship and communion with Jesus Christ around that table. Dear ones, when we come to the Lord's Supper and sit with Christ, as it were, Ought not our hearts to overflow with gratitude for the spiritual leprosy from which He has cleansed each of us? Ought not that thankfulness to characterize our hearts even every single day as we consider the spiritual leprosy from which we have been cleansed and healed? I dare say, dear ones, that we can gauge our communion with Christ every day by our thankfulness to Christ. For a thankful heart is a communing heart. It is not necessarily, dear ones, he who knows the most theology that enjoys Christ the most, but he who knows the hell Christ has saved him from and overflows with thankfulness that enjoys Christ the most. Now, there were other guests that were present at this meal besides Simon. And there are mentioned two other guests by name in John chapter 12, verse 2. The parallel passage to this passage. One of whom was Lazarus, whom Christ had raised from the dead. He sat at the table with Simon and with the Lord Jesus and with Christ's disciples. And another guest is identified in John 12, too, as Martha, the sister of Lazarus. She was there as well. And it says that she served the Lord. She served the meals, or the meal as it was was brought forth to the table. So she, as well as her brother, Lazarus, were present. One other important note to make concerning this meal as far as the circumstances, whereas in Mark chapter 14 we only learn that this was, that there was a certain woman who showed a notable act of love. It does not identify this woman by name, just a certain woman. Whereas again in John chapter 12 verse 3, we learned who this woman was. And it was none other than Mary, the sister of Lazarus, 
and Martha who performed this act of love to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, moving now from the circumstances leading up to this act of love, let us consider the act of love itself. While the Lord Jesus was communing with his followers, Mary was so moved with love for her Savior and the death he was about to face that she brought to the table a very expensive and aromatic ointment called the spikenard in an alabaster bottle, a very fragile bottle made of stone <clears throat> that often carried such costly ointments. She brought the bottle to the table and she broke the neck of the bottle, most likely, and slowly poured out the contents of this precious ointment that cost, we find in our text, <clears throat> would have sold for about 300 pence. She poured this particular ointment out upon the, the head of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to our text in Mark chapter 14, and then according to our text in John chapter 12, upon his feet as well, and wiped his feet with her own hair. This particular costly ointment cost 300 pence. Now, a pence or a denar denarius was equivalent, one of them was equivalent to one working man's day. What he would be paid for one day's labor was the ordinary amount, was a denarius or a pence that's stated here. This amount or the sacrifice that she brought and the ointment that she poured out upon the Lord's head and upon his feet in preparation for his burial, his death and his burial, was equivalent nearly to one working man's yearly wage. Quite a sacrifice. The entire room was filled with the pleasant smell of this costly perfume. Now, dear ones, this was not the, the kind of action one would ordinarily show toward one who was just a casual acquaintance. It was the act of one who loved much because she had been loved much. <clears throat> this was what Christ said, you remember, concerning another woman who showed the same expression of love to Christ on another occasion in Galilee, as we see in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 and, 36 and following. On that occasion, Christ said the woman there who was described as a sinner, perhaps a harlot, loved much and showed it so demonstrably because she knew how much Christ had forgiven her. She was aware of the love the Lord had shown to her. What she had been delivered from, and she therefore, Jesus said, loved much because she was forgiven much. Mary's action, we find here in Mark 14, was similarly motivated by her love for Christ and knowing how much she had been forgiven by Christ as well. And dear ones, we can never love Christ as we ought 
We can never love others as we ought if we do not know and understand the depths of depravity, the mire and the muck from which we have been saved. If that does not continue to impress us, what the Lord has saved us from, and that which He has saved us unto, we will never, never understand how we are to love Christ and others. Mary, in this particular account, Mary enjoyed the Lord whereas Martha served the Lord. Now, we should not do one to the exclusion of the other. We should both enjoy the Lord and serve the Lord. But in two cases where we find Mary and Martha contrasted, in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, there Jesus was in the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, and Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. She was taking in every word that fell from his mouth. She was seeking to grow her love and her devotion to Christ, had her steadfastly attentive to the Lord Jesus Christ. She couldn't get enough of Christ. Martha was very busy serving Christ in that she was preparing a meal and she was coming in and out. And she came up to the Lord, you recall, and said to the Lord, Lord, don't you care? Look how busy I've been. Don't you care that I'm doing all the work here and Mary's sitting at your feet? And the Lord says to Martha, 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 you're, you're so busy. You're so concerned with so many things in this life. But Mary has chosen the better of the things. As I said, this does not mean we can spend all of our time simply at the feet of Christ and not work and serve. But this shows the priority between the two that we, above all else, must seek to enjoy Christ. We must commune with Christ. And here we see in our text in Mark 14 again, Martha serving. But Mary, Mary showing her love in a very demonstrable way, in communing with Christ by pouring forth this ointment upon his head and upon his feet. Dear ones, there is nothing that will move the Christian to serve the Lord with greater sacrifice than a continual remembrance of Christ's grace and mercy that has been shown unto him. There is nothing that will transform the trials of life into opportunities to break the alabaster vials of perfume over the head and feet of our Savior than reflecting upon the kindness of Christ in lifting you out of the muck and the mire of sin and in cleansing you from that muck and mire of sin and in clothing you in the perfect and glorious robes of righteousness and in making you who were, who were filthy beggars, making you the very children of God. Dear ones, the reason we do not love much is because we do not truly understand what Christ has saved us from and what He has saved us unto. We have forgotten. 
When our love grows cold, we have forgotten. When we become apathetic and indifferent in our Christian lives, we have forgotten. Such a daily knowledge of Christ's great love for you will transform your laborious duties into joyful expressions of love and gratitude. For, dear ones, no sacrifice is too great on our parts when we know the love of Christ for us. Even the sacrifice of our own lives is not too great when we know what Christ has done for us and how He has loved us. He who was holy and blameless voluntarily suffered the infinite wrath of His Father in order to make you and me who were worse than harlots in His sight to make us His own bride. That is the Gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. He gave up all in order to give you all. It's the greatest love story ever told. Will you not today embrace such a Savior? This is a love, dear ones, that breaks the hardest, the most calloused of hearts. Are you struggling today with various trials or with various besetting sins in your life? You need to be refreshed. You need to be refreshed with the perfume of Christ's love before you can be a victor over the trials and sins in your life. You need to know afresh and anew the love of Christ for you so that you can go forth in the victory and the power of Christ. For the love of Christ to us, dear ones, begets the power of Christ within us. Mary loved much because she knew she was forgiven much. Let us consider, secondly, an unfounded word of criticism in Mark 14, verses 4 through 5. And there were some that had indignation within themselves, and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than three hundred pence, and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. At this point, we see how the criticism of others would seek to dampen the fire of love shown in Mary's act. There were some present who were so upset by Mary's act of love that they became indignant. And apparently the ringleader of this criticism was Judas Iscariot himself who was to betray Christ in the next couple days as we see from the parallel passage in John chapter 12 verse 4. There it says that it was Judas who instigated the criticism But the criticism of one became the criticism of many, for we find in the parallel account in Matthew 26, 8, that the disciples, it said, fought this way. They were all brought into this criticism of Mary. Here we see how such evil criticism, dear ones, has the potential to destroy the good works done out of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather than interpreting Mary's sacrifice as the fruit of her love for Christ, 
and rejoicing together with her in it, his disciples rather construed her act as a sin against the poor. Sin against the poor. Christ's disciples misconstrued a good and loving act as a wasteful and selfish act. Why was this waste of the ointment made, they said? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been sold to the poor. And they murmured against her. What led the disciples to draw such an uncharitable conclusion? We cannot say for sure, for the text does not tell us for sure, but we can suggest some possible reasons. Number one, perhaps they were jealous and envious of Mary's devotion to Christ. And rather than learning from her, they criticized her. Rather than rejoicing in the gifts and graces of Mary, they criticized her. Or secondly, perhaps they were pricked with guilt for not showing a similar love to Christ as Mary had done. Perhaps they were pricked because they had not demonstrated their own love for Jesus Christ in such a way in preparing for His burial which was to come. They knew that such acts of love for Christ should be in their lives but perhaps they weren't there to the same degree that they were in, the, in Mary's life. A third possible reason. Perhaps their pride was hurt in that the light of public attention was cast upon her act of love and the light was taken off of them. These disciples who had argued among themselves as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God were shown up, as it were, at least from their perspective, by a woman and her act of love for Christ. And yet they were, had been arguing amongst themselves who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Or perhaps, fourthly, finally, perhaps it was just due to the greed of Judas whom we find in John chapter 12, verse 4, was the one who handled the money, dispersed the money, and was pilfering the money, stealing to satisfy his own lusts, his own desires. And there wouldn't be as much money because Mary poured that ointment out upon Christ rather than selling it and giving it to Judas to disperse to the poor or to put in his own pockets. What I find interesting about the criticism of the disciples is how it was couched in such pious and holy terms. They were concerned for the poor. Dear ones, how often do we criticize others and justify our criticism by using some godly reason? We judge the motives and intentions of others and put our own slant on their actions, excusing our criticism with something like this. 
If they were really godly, they would have done this rather than that. Even though there was nothing ungodly in and of itself that was done by that person or the, the decision that was made by that person. It was simply interpreted to have been done for the wrong motives. Patting our criticism with our own personal standards of piety and with our own unenlightened interpretation of someone's motives is a grievous sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. For we destroy others with our criticism. Dear ones, such criticism is not a sign of love for the brethren, but rather a sign of hatred for the brethren. A sign of hatred. Furthermore, we usurp the place of Christ who alone has the right to judge others. Who has the right to judge the actions of others that are not sinful in and of themselves. We act as though when we judge others and criticize others in this way, when those actions are not sinful in and of themselves, we act as though we were omniscient and we know their motives and we know their intentions. This is to usurp God's place. That is why we should always be so slow to criticize others and to do so only when we have the facts straight, our own sin straight, our love for our neighbor straight, and the glory of God straight. Dear ones, we only reveal our own immaturity and insecurity in the faith when we give way to sinful criticism. But what I find so encouraging about our Savior is that He does not put His disciples upon the back burner, as it were. He does not say, well, now you've entirely blown it. You can no longer be a disciple of mine. For he did not choose perfect men to be his disciples or even to be his ministers. He chose those who were weak, frail sinners who fell into such sins as unjust criticism in order to demonstrate to us all that we desperately need the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever we are and whatever the position we hold in the church, we need the Lord Jesus Christ. And none of us are above unjust criticism. None of us. We must all guard our hearts and our tongues lest we fall into this dreadful, dreadful sin that destroys our own soul and the soul of others and is a slap in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see that Christ is an all-sufficient Savior who takes the chief of sinners and makes of them trophies of His own grace. Dear ones, the fact that the Lord Jesus didn't just simply discard His disciples at that precise moment he rebukes them for their sin. He corrects them. 
but he continues to uphold them, to bear with them, indicates there is hope for us all. There's hope for us all. The Lord Jesus comes. He rebukes us. He rebukes those whom he loves. He chastises those whom he loves. But he doesn't leave us and forsake us. When he rebukes us, when he chastises us, he comes alongside of us to build us up and to encourage us. Which leads us to our last main point. An approved word of encouragement. In Mark 14, verses 6 through 9. And Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always. And whensoever ye will, ye may do them good. But me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She has come aforehand to anoint my body to the bearing. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Here we learn from the Lord these two encouraging truths to bear in mind when we ourselves endure unjust criticism. The first truth that we must bear in mind when we are unjustly criticized is this. Christ is our judge and not men. Christ is our judge and not men. The Lord who knows all and sees all rebukes the disciples and defends the actions of Mary as a good work, according to Mark 14.6. He who knows Mary's heart of love defends her and vindicates her before her accusers. The disciples said she should have sold the costly perfume and given the money to care for the poor. But Christ said that caring for the poor was an ordinary work that could be done at any time because the poor would be always here upon the earth. However, the anointing of his body for his burial that was to come was an extraordinary work that could not be done just at any time. Her act of love was actually justified before God for she did it out of faith looking to Christ's coming sacrifice. She knew she did not have much time to show such a tangible act of love for her Lord, and she chose to do it then. Dear ones, none of us knows how much time we have to show in very tangible ways our love for the Lord Jesus Christ and our love for our spouses, our love for our children, our love for our parents, our love for the brethren, our love even for sinners who, who are outside the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every day is a day to demonstrate our love for Christ. There was one of the most comforting truths to which we can cling when we are unfairly judged and criticized is the fact that Christ knows our hearts and he is the one who ultimately judges our motives and our works. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 3 through 5 we find that this was a great comfort to the Apostle Paul himself. 
For the Apostle Paul knew what it was to endure unjust criticism. He says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you, or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. Paul says, first of all, not only can I not judge myself, or not only can you not judge me, I cannot even judge myself accurately or perfectly. So it's a small thing that I be judged of man when man criticizes me or judges me. Verse 4, For I know nothing by myself, yet I am not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. Dear ones, if we cannot judge even accurately our own motives perfectly, how do we expect that we can judge the motives and intentions of others? Certainly we can judge certain words that are spoken. We can judge certain actions that are spoken that are clearly in violation of God's word. But we cannot judge the hearts and the motives and the intentions of men who seek to obey the Lord and yet whose standards of piety do not necessarily measure up to our own. If we do not have clear demonstration from God's word that what someone is doing or saying is contrary to the word of God, we must not judge their motives or their intentions. And even when someone, let's take a Christian in another church, who is disobeying the Lord in the way they worship God, and which is clearly contrary to the law of God, they may yet still, out of ignorance, be offering what they do unto God out of love for the Lord. Now, if they do so with knowledge that this is wrong, clearly this is wrong, then obviously that the, the motive and the intention is, is, is condemned. But dear ones, we must be careful, even in our looking at others who do not share the same doctrine that we embrace and believe to be the truth and do not share the same convictions with regard to worship and church government that we do not judge their motives and their intentions. We can judge their actions if it's contrary, but let us be careful that we do not act as though we are God and judge the heart of men. It may be painful to be unfairly criticized, especially by fellow disciples of the Lord, by fellow Christians. But let us remember that we are not the servants of man, but we are the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand or fall not on the basis of man's judgment, but on the basis of Christ's judgment. And He is able to cause us 
to endure all unjust criticism, if Christ is our life and our reason for living, he is able to cause us to withstand all unjust criticism. The second truth that we learn, the first being Christ is our judge and not men, the second truth that we learn that will help us to endure just unjust criticism is this. Christ encourages and gives hope when others criticize and discourage us. In Mark 14.9, we read these words. Verily I say unto you, Wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of her for a memorial of her. Mary's good work is not only defended by Christ before her accusers, but her good work will not be forgotten. Does not the Lord take the poison from the mouth of Mary's critics and bring forth encouragement and hope to her faith that her work is not in vain in the Lord? He remembers even if others criticize. He will not forget even if they judge unfairly. And neither will we forget Mary's good work. For Christ has included her act of love in the gospel that is recorded for us here in Scripture. Will not, dear ones, the work of our children be done much more diligently and in order to please us? when we encourage them and give them hope, even in the midst of our loving criticism of their weaknesses and sins. Don't we all work much more diligently and faithfully when we are criticized or when weaknesses and sins are pointed out to us that someone comes alongside of us and says, I just pointed out some sins to you but I'm not going to leave you by yourself to simply struggle in that sin, to wrestle with that sin. I'm going to do whatever I can to help. I'm going to do whatever I can to stand with you and to pray for you and to encourage you and to give you hope that you can overcome this sin by the grace of God. Our mere criticism of others will destroy others and will destroy ourselves. But our bearing those up with encouragement and hope will spur them on to persevere and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. Dear ones, if we desire the perfume of Christ's love to be manifested in this world, we must ourselves first be broken we must be broken over our own sin and we must be broken over the mercy of God that has been shown to us. No cost, dear ones, no cost or sacrifice will be too great to one who has been broken by the mercy and the grace of God. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, come now and break us 
that, O Lord, the perfume of the gospel might be spread abroad in the lives of those who are gathered here today and even amongst those with whom we work, amongst our family members. Father, we pray that Thou would forgive us of our critical hearts, critical in a negative sense, where, O Lord our God, we have not done so out of love for our neighbor. We have not done so uh, out of a desire to glorify Thee. We have not done so in order to help and to encourage and to grant hope. But we have done so, O Lord, our God, out of pride, out of jealousy. We have done so, O Lord, in order to make ourselves look good and others to look bad. We've done so in order to justify our actions and to excuse our own sins. Forgive us, our Father. Deliver us from this besetting sin of unjust criticism and cause us, our God, to delight in loving criticism, in helping and in profiting those to whom we point out their weaknesses and faults and sins. God, use us. For Father, even as Thou did use the disciples who had fallen into the sin, even as Thou did break their hearts and show them and reveal to them their sin so that they could be used mightily to take the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ forward, use us, forsake us not, and cause us as parents and as children, cause us as husbands and as wives, cause us as as ministers and elders and as members of the congregation to realize the healing ointment of loving criticism, but the foul smell and destructive tendencies of unjust criticism. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, 
Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.